You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie Leonard. And this is Aaliyah Gaskins. And we are excited that you are joining us for another episode. And today, I mean, in the midst of COVID-19, who better to talk to than somebody with decades of experience in emergency management? But we are joined by Marcus Coleman. He is a strategic partnership development and senior program manager. And his work has been focused on how do we really put equity at the center of our emergency management and resilience efforts? And how do we think about policies, programs, and opportunities to really advance both individual and community action um, so that when the next disaster hits, whether that be, you know, the next wave of coronavirus or hurricanes or flooding or other issues in our community, how can we reduce the risk um, within our communities, especially within communities of color? And so super excited to have him here and to dive into his experience and his ideas. Um, So with that, welcome, Marcus. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, we are so excited. I think the the topic area and the level of expertise that you bring, I'm just really, really excited because in a lot of situations, we aren't talking about, you know, disaster response or pandemic response. And I think your perspective is really, really powerful. So in that vein, with that being said, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So originally from Tucson, Arizona, um, moved out to DC in 2004 to go to Howard University, HU, you know, um, went back to Arizona for a bit and then actually came back to DC for grad school for American University and have been out here ever since. Um, pretty actively involved in a few things in the DC area and just generally interested in basically, right? How do we make the most of what happens pre and post disaster more equitable, um, both on behalf of as it relates to the government's relationships to the public, but then also thinking about the different public's relationship to government. So it's a little bit about myself. Awesome. I'm curious. I mean, so you've been working on these issues around equity and disaster preparedness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like, what does that actually mean? What is that? What does it look like to do that? And yeah. why does it matter? No, uh, an excellent question. So the, one of the the way that I've been thinking about it lately, and I've, I've I admittedly have been a bit frustrated, is I've been thinking about the issue of how we resist the temptation to start from scratch when talking about implementing actions to achieve equity in emergency management or equity in whatever the crisis is of the day. A part of the world seems to have this affinity that anytime something of a magnitude or scale that is new or unfamiliar happens, that they want to start from zero, right? So they'll say, well, let's take a big step back and think about this and collect some data and stuff like that, especially when it comes to matters of race, poverty, and other forms of othering, both in terms of framing questions, but then also on the execution of solutions. And so it's a little bit of right starting from scratch or reduplicating the wheel. Um, Our communities and our nation, like it's interesting, right? So we are working through very familiar tensions at a scale that may seem unfamiliar, but we definitely have the tools to address those immediately and collectively. And so a lot of what I'm focused on is how to work through the tension between the equity implications and legal and policy considerations of each decision being made right now and in the future and our desire to reach the next normal. Because, I mean, those tensions are definitely going to create some problems 
that are new, but then also continue to contribute right to problems that preexisted, whatever happened as related to the coronavirus response immediately. I think one immediate example is in May, for example, starts the beginning of preparations for hurricane season, which we know and have seen um, can promote generous, are pretty large, substantial inequities in communities if they're not prepared. That's what I wanted to touch on. So my work prior to working in Alexandria, Virginia, was in um, southwest Florida. And so hurricane preparedness and, you know, climate change, very, very important. Who's typically at the table in these conversations? So what's the demographic, I guess, of the decision makers and the people, you know, responding? And then when you talk about tension, how are they receptive to the conversations about racial inequity? So Florida raises an interesting uh, connection that I think a lot In of people many aspects. Florida's just for a sure. Place. <laughs> it is a special place. Um, but I'll say particularly special because when you think about the question of kind of who's at the table, and, and I'll go back as early as the uh, pre- preparations and work happening in the early 2000s, uh, one of those groups is actually the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So uh, many people know them as the oldest civil rights organization. They've been actively involved, of course, uh, for more than 100 years now. But many people may not know is that as early in the early 2000s, uh, they, they took a, a direct role with the state's emergency management office led then by Craig Fugate. Uh, essentially to help build out community preparedness at a scale uh, of disasters. And so while there's a lot of discussion about the disasters that happened in 2005, uh, for Floridians particularly, there was a massive chain of disasters that hit in 2004 that definitely kind of set the groundswell for some of the preparations they did in 2005. And so when we usually have that conversation outside of a group like the NACP, what we're talking about in terms of people that are at the table normally, so it's going to be first responder groups, there's a collection of organizations called the national organization our national voluntary organizations active in disasters and their state chapters while that main name may not be familiar it's an organization of or that can include or a collection of organizations that include the american red cross united methodist church um catholic charities usa and so those are the kind of organizations that kind of sit in that space on a normal basis thinking about how to move and coordinate before, during, and after disasters. But when we think about it in terms of equity, it's usually been kind of presented on an ha- uh, ad hoc basis, right? I say, like like I said, I think for Florida, at the time it was the exception. Um, and when Administrator Craig Fugate actually moved over to serve as head of FEMA uh, under the Obama administration, he actually scaled some pretty substantial partnerships. So in addition to signing an MOU nationally with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, he also looked to groups like the National Disability Rights Network, uh, AARP, American Association of Persons with Disabilities um, as a means to, to really engage and in, in not just, you know, say pay lip service to, you know, we, we're looking for those partnerships, but to actually quantify and magnify the capacity and work that groups are doing every day. They're getting a ground truth that a lot of traditional government agencies just wouldn't get on their best day. And then working together with those organizations to, to really identify opportunities to meet the needs of, of folks that are affected by disasters before, during, and after. Now, the challenge with that is, and, and I'll give pause here, even at their best, some of these national partnerships and some of these statewide partnerships, they may be important, but they may not always get to the the, the lowest level of need or the lowest common denominator uh, for your neighbor. So definitely places to grow. But I think that if you're looking for some examples of organizations at the table, um, that's a pretty good place to start. Mm-hmm. 
So Katie's question around who's at the table raises for me. I was reading your latest blog and you talk about sort of how do we reimagine social connection during the coronavirus pandemic. And you start off with this quote, um, I think it's by Reverend Eugene Chow. And the quote talks about who are we, who do we serve, and what do we care about? And I'm curious if you were speaking to maybe one of these national groups that are at the table in these conversations, or even some of the local and state officials at the table, like why is it important for them to start with a reality check with those questions about who do they serve and what do we care about before jumping into any decisions um, about the latest response that's needed? You know, that that's something that I... I unfortunately have to think more about than I'd like, because I think in times of crisis, it's easy to to go to the mental basement, if you will, where you're kind of just com- complete instinct and not necessarily thinking about what consequences are of immediate decisions. Uh, what stood out to me about uh, Reverend Cho's quote, he used to actually pastor a, a very large and very influential church out in the West Coast and has since moved to the East Coast to lead a faith-based organization called uh, Bread for the World. Um, is it, it, it really forces people to reckon with in times of crisis and in times of need before and during, right? Like there's some very important things that you should do to help kind of frame your place in space in the world and make sure that the decisions and things that you're contributing to um, are mindful of creating a sense of belonging. I think that easily comes from faith organizations um, and some of the non-faith organizations, right, that are very values driven. Uh, But one of the the things that I, I lean on or would look to or encourage people to implore actually comes from a concept that was laid out by a collection of, of researchers that I worked with or worked under at Harvard University for the National Preparedness uh, Leadership Initiative. They talk a lot about this concept of, of meta leadership and what it essentially is, right, is it's looking at you as a person, uh, making sure that you're mindful of your self-awareness, self-knowledge and self-regulation. The situation that you find yourself in, knowing that it's going to often be filled with operating in incomplete information and determining what's happening, who the different stakeholders are at any given time, what's likely to happen next. And then using that that space and place of understanding yourself, understanding the situation that you're in, and really thinking about some of the connections you want to make, right? So not just the connections up the chain. I think typically in times of crisis or whenever we think about things that seem insurmountable, we typically look for the highest title up the chain. But I think one of the things that, that I think every leader should consider, regardless of title, right, is you do have the ability to lead from where you are to connect with those organizations and those people that sit immediately from cro- across from you, right? Um, but then also be able to, to lead and connect the, with those folks that are beyond maybe your scope of normal thinking. And I think what we're seeing with this COVID-19 response, particularly as it relates to the faith community, that there's a lot of opportunities, uh, not just for the practitioners that are the state and local government officials, but then also for those organizations and investors and donors that are looking to really make sure that they are Definitely, yes, giving the money and funds for some of the immediate food box needs, but continue to invest in the institution of organizations that are going to be meeting not just this crisis, but the crises to come. Um, and that often goes to the faith community and some of the values driven organizations uh, that would be considered nonprofits or even some of the more uh, newer right uh, on the scene, some of the social enterprise organizations as well. So what's the what's the balance, right? So we want everybody's voice to be heard. We want people to be represented, especially in disaster, you know, response and recovery. But I know for me coming from a community organizing type background, you get everybody's voice at the table and then Mm -hmm. you can't move forward, right? So what's the balance in this space of we need to hear from everybody? I know there's 
um, what is it? I think it's called Casper, where you mm-hmm. can go out pre-disaster and do like surveys and demographic analysis of your community to really see what their needs are. And you can use an equity lens for that. But what really is that balance of having people's voices heard, knowing the true needs of the community and actually moving forward when, you know, we need to and not getting weighed down with some of the issues. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it's a struggle that unfortunately, and I think you both have experienced this, when people run up against that tension, they go one of two directions. They either defer to say this is too hard and they back away and they find ways to project and shift burden to those folks that are um, otherwise, you know, unable to, to, to move with the same type of capital, um, or they go the direction again, I think of what, what I see happening more than it needs to in trying to start from zero. The, the framing of the question is interesting. And, and, and I guess I'd, I'd, I'd amend it a bit. Like the way that I often think about this right now is not the question of how we achieve balance because balance is exhausting. And at the end of the day, I think as, as leaders and as people of color, we often find ourselves leading while other other eyes, right? And what I mean by other is that you're in a system that inherently, not maybe for you individually, but for the people and lived experiences that you represent are against you. And so trying to achieve balance in that thing often shifts too much burden in your direction to take tensions between two really big things that you can't control. But we do have the ability, right, to try to find harmony between those interests that we see at any given time operating and thinking about some of the ultimate outcomes or things that we want to contribute to. So for me, when I was at the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Center for Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships for a number of years, I often sat at this place and position where there was clearly strong interest for transparency, wanting to feel like people are getting information at the same time being able to have not just the proverbial seat at the table, but literally being able to sit with leaders and talk through some of the issues long before there was any issue in the headlines. And finding that harmony often meant that we didn't dictate when and where we would meet groups. We would often have to meet groups where they were in a way that centered their lived experience and ultimately their their place of existence. With disasters, what happens is it's a very rigid system uh, governed by principles like the incident command structure and the national incident management system. And those I things matter. I was an incident commander for a pod that we did in the city mm-hmm. of Alexandria and I crushed it, might I add. So awesome. Awesome. There because it's really hard and I want people to know so much goes into that and so much coordination. So I'm glad you brought that up. No, absolutely. And I think, again, it's right. How do you achieve harmony with systems like the incident command system and the national incident management system, which may be foreign terms to anybody not in in, in emergency management in any capacity with the, the realities of how you pull together an event at a house of worship, right? Or how you execute a large event to help feed the needy. That That's where I think you have some of the limits of government that need to be humble in their leadership about how do we make sure that we're achieving harmony with those systems at play as well? And so I, I think one of the, the best ways for me that I've thought about it is, again, going going back to one of the terms that, that I've found to be useful is taking an integrative approach to like look at that point of tension and finding some opportunities to achieve harmony where clearly we're mindful of each other's interest and we're leading from this place of empathy, but we're doing so in a very practical way. Um, I think an easy example is, and, and this is picking up on, on another faith organization that does a lot of great work, you have organizations like the, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who has a global footprint, um, has a very uh, organized and command and control structure. They've been working with the National Baptist Convention and a host of other African-American, predominantly African-American serving houses of worship 
and actually collectively knowing that they are our voices of authority partnered with the NACP Legal Defense Fund, not to be confused with the NACP, and promoted and, and have guidance going out directly to their faith leaders, not only to ensure that folks are being safe at home in their practices for worship, but then also being mindful that any service projects need to be mindful of some of that guidance as well. And so, again, there, there, there's a lot of harmony that has to be achieved there for anybody that knows church politics. Um, it's often a lot different than some of the political politics that we see played out on big network TV. Uh, but I think that that is a good example of, I think, a few organizations coming together and just knowing that there's an ultimate outcome achieved and doing the things that they can do collectively uh, to achieve harmony throughout that process. I think one of the things your answer raises is just kind of the importance of engaging communities like the faith community. And I'm curious, you know, earlier I was watching CNN today and they were talking about how many of our churches right now are just struggling because Mm -hmm. they're not getting the same, you know, resources, people aren't tithing, people are facing their very own real economic burdens and struggles, and they don't have the same resources you dedicate to the church like they may have done just a month ago. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like or how should communities think about reaching out to their faith communities at a time like this for help with engagement when they are facing very real challenges of capacity at this time? Absolutely. So a little bit of old school fund development. I think that we can talk about contributions as it relates to time, talent, and tre- treasure. Um, I think if we're speaking to some of the elected officials or government officials or public servants or people who find themselves in positions that, again, from a, a, a crisis response or a disaster recovery perspective, are going to be seeking to, to look to those same faith and community-based organizations at the table, um, there's also a part of it about, right, how do you make sure that we are providing the conditions and space for them? Uh, to adequately not just meet the needs of survivors, but also being mindful to hear some of the the primary and secondary implications about how the the, the lack of giving, the lack of opportunity to connect directly, um, is affecting their their core principles. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, right, this this particular pandemic has upended so many different institutions at once that a lot of the things that we would rely on as kind of backup ways to connect um, are gone. And I think we're we're finding that there are some folks that are a little bit more entrepreneurial and thinking about how to connect, uh, not just with worship services, but finding other ways to give. And like, thankfully, I think we're seeing some great examples uh, from the District of Columbia, City of Alexandria, um, and other places and spaces, right, where I think that they're able to get back to at least, you know, providing groceries and, and food to people in partnership with food banks and things like that. One of the things that I think I want to point out just for for the purpose of this call is I think often when folks think about contributions of the faith community, and this is actually a pretty big assumption, is that the role and scope kind of looks the same. And they typically think of the faith community as just like kind of one big church or mosque or synagogue. And it's not that the assumptions are ill-intended and correct or wrongly placed. It's just oftentimes that we miss broader opportunities to connect with the faith community writ large. And one of the, like, what I mean by that is collectively annually, right? So there's some interesting research from this organization called Faith Counts that talks about the socioeconomic contributions of religion to American society is $1.2 trillion, which is a substantial amount of money, right? Like that's one of the COVID bills that have come out um, lately, right? And plus some. And when we talk about the contributions of the religious American community, we're not just talking about the, the mosque, church, synagogue down the street, right? We're talking about businesses, which includes religious media. We're talking about restaurants, maybe. Uh, we're talking about businesses with religious backgrounds. There's some pretty influential and pretty famous businesses 
not just in food service that are actually faith-based and people may not know that. And that's in addition to, right, the institution. So I think where we don't think about faith in maybe the church or the synagogue or the mosque, we definitely think about faith in schools or faith in higher education or faith in healthcare. And so I think when we're, as practitioners that are looking to build out that next iteration of maybe not that their, their task force or their group that's achieving equity, we really want to rethink who we're engaging when we're talking about engaging the, the faith community or religious community and being mindful that if we're going to be taking a, a, the broadest context possible, that we want to represent the interests of people with no faith as well. And so there's some organizations that definitely help to do that and contribute, I think, in a very healthy way in discussions across faith, such as the Center for Inquiry, um, to, to really think about, again, how do we make sure that we're meeting the needs of people, but then also respecting their lived experiences and preferred ways of receiving services uh, that are either government sponsored or government partnered. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up that, you know, there isn't a one size fits all. And we are very quick to put people in, you know, a category and think that, oh, this is group X, they get resource Y, and that's it. And so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, In terms of equity and the work that you're doing, So, you know, we've talked about a lot, a lot of different resources, a lot of different people doing really great things. What does success, as arbitrary as that word is, what does success look like in your work? That's a good question. So one of the, I'll, that's a a good enough question to have me go in a bunch of different directions, but I'm going to pick two. Uh, So I think... (laughs) Two areas where I see success happening that I hope continues to scale. Um, one of them is related to the healthcare sector and, and healthcare sector services. And the second is actually related to the criminal justice system. And again, people currently or formerly in, incarcerated. Um, so for the healthcare sector, I want to just elevate another group doing awesome work. Uh, there's a woman by the name of Dr. Nicolette Lewis Saint, who is the executive director of Healthcare Ready. It's an organization that was actually founded after Katrina. And it's, it's very much focused on this idea of how do we ensure that we are uh, affording people the opportunity of access uh, who consider themselves either medically fragile or socially vulnerable, uh, not just to get the the healthcare needs in the COVID context, but then also, again, we have a lot of pre-existing conditions out there. You have people that need access to dialysis centers. Uh, they've done a great job in coming alongside the faith community, uh, the pharmaceutical sector, a lot of folks in the supply chain, elect local elected officials. When we talk about that meta leadership model, I think she and her team very much kind of reflect that meta leadership approach, really for the purpose and outcome of, again, ultimately ensuring that patients or people and individuals and families who need access to health care, not just from the place of insurance, but more importantly, are in addition to insurance, right? That question, they don't necessarily address that, but making sure that people are have access to getting some of their needs met, right? And so that can be refilling prescriptions, that can be, again, going to dialysis centers and getting the necessary transport. Um, and they're, they're looking at the, the entire patient experience from, from the point of wherever they sit, if they need renal care um, and, and solving there. When we talk about it from the criminal justice space, an interesting organization is actually called Civil Rights Corps. Um, and just full disclosure, so my wife works at Civil Rights Corps. She's been helping to support some of their crisis communication efforts. I've been able to see from afar, and like this is actually playing out in the news as well, 
there's a large conversation that's happening about how do we help support those folks that are incarcerated or find themselves, you know, still very much in the criminal justice system. Um, if nothing else, right, they maybe need to pay bail or they may be in jail because they they couldn't afford, you know, the 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 five hundred dollars that you need to be able to post bail. And so seeing some of the work of Civil Rights Corps, Color of Change, uh, the NAACP's criminal justice uh, efforts has been promising because, I mean, again, I think there's some pre-existing conversations about the conditions of people in jails right now anyway, like, right, that you didn't need COVID to have that conversation. Uh, but there's definitely some compounding challenges with this particular pandemic and just thinking about broadly some of the inequities that are imposed upon the criminal justice system in times of disaster. Uh, we can draw it back to examples from Katrina, from Hurricane Sandy, uh, from the 2017 disasters, and much further than that. But I think that those are kind of two specific organizations that are producing some outcomes that, one, I think are making sure that people, again, considered socially vulnerable or medically fragile, um, are able to get the access to care that they need and doing so in a way that kind of builds on the partnerships and goodwills happening across the country. Um, but two, like, right, for making sure those folks that are in the, the, the criminal justice system or, or have or find themselves, you know, out of it, but very much still affected by it, or they may be a family member, um, that they have a little bit of recourse and understanding of how they can ensure that their loved ones um, are safe and well at this time also. Marcus, I feel like we have covered a lot of really interesting points throughout this conversation. And so I guess my final question would be, given what you've raised around kind of the work that's needed and how do we shift and have these conversations differently now in light of COVID-19, but also not forgetting the lessons we've learned from previous disasters, what would be like your most important next step? If you had the ear of maybe one of our local elected officials, what would you ask them for or what would you want to see happen next in order to truly advance um, an equitable response in our region? I, I appreciate that question and I've loved this discussion. I would ask them to avoid three things. Um, and this is something that I see happen all the time in blue sky days and definitely accelerates during the time of, of crisis. The first thing to avoid is working outside of the formal structures and decision-making process of people you want to partner with. And so you can't skip steps to get to a bishop, right? You, sh you shouldn't try to skip steps or work around people. Or if somebody raises their hand and says, you know, my organization wants to do X, Y, Z, or we're going to commit ourselves to that. I think just generally speaking, right, we wouldn't ask an employee of, of Pepsi or Coke or whoever to make decisions on behalf of the organization. And we shouldn't expect that from any nonprofit leader or executive as well. Um, I think the second piece is to be mindful of not falling into the trap of seeking long-term results from short-term investments. There, While there's an impressive amount of money flowing to nonprofit and community-based organizations and faith-based organizations, I think, as you all mentioned, it's not nearly enough to really backfill the realities of what they're going to be investing. And so I think we it'd be a bit short-sighted to say and point back to somebody and say, well, hey, you know, we gave you $20,000 last week, so that should be good for the next three to four years. That's just not true. Um, and then I think the last piece that's something that we all should be mindful of, right, is being mindful of what it looks like to make sure that we are not building capabilities without building social currency. At the end of the day, this is all relationship-based. It's all networked. We're all in this together. I think for some practitioners, particularly those in the emergency management field or some people that may be looking at some of the harder number questions, 
it may be sounding a little bit touchy feely, but the reality of it is, is when you need people to show up, they're often going to show up because they have a good relationship. And even if they don't trust you, they're going to trust you because they see that there's an opportunity to move forward with somebody. Um, and that kind of leads to, if I had a call to action, it would be to find the helpers. And finding the helpers is worth the investment of time. It's remembering that not every helper is as well resourced as you are. And so when you're inviting people to meetings, when you're having sessions, being mindful that some people are paid to be there because that's what their faith based or their nonprofit does. And a lot of people ain't, uh, particularly those folks that are going to be on the front lines in the advocate position. They're there on their own time and they're making different sacrifices. And then allowing the helpers to be of best help while doing the best they can is worth the investment as well. So like we know that the disaster impacts, not just from COVID-19, but from others are going to continue to expand. It's going to cost from billions to trillions. So I believe that any investment that a decision maker or policymaker can make in an organization consistent with the constitution um, and and personal and and community ethic is definitely worth it um, in terms of keeping the helpers at the table and making sure that anyone who is helping isn't just empowered to speak, but that you're actively able to take some of that information and turn that into some actionable next steps. Those are mm-hmm. awesome. And I think applicable for almost any issue out there, not just the space. So that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And I think too, speaking of what you said about relationships and creating a community of helpers, how can our listeners stay in touch with you and continue the conversation? Sure. Um, so I am probably most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So my Twitter handle is MT Coleman Jr. And LinkedIn, just Marcus Coleman um, on LinkedIn. And those are the best ways. I'll say just in general, if you're looking for like tags or stuff that I'll be on. So there's a very interesting emergency management tag that's EMG Twitter. Uh, And that's where you have emergency management professionals from across different disciplines uh, connecting and asking and addressing some very interesting questions, Um, not just about disasters past, but also just in terms of thinking about and processing uh, how to move forward from a COVID-19 context. All right. Well, thank you for your time. This was awesome. I feel like I learned so much about emergency management and just (laughs) the opportunity. No, thank you. I, one last shout out. I'm sorry, guys. And I will I, I will give you the time back. I mentioned that NAACP I actually want to close with two helpful resources because people are always looking for like the thing in the box. So NAACP actually developed an equity and disasters toolkit back in 2018, which is phenomenal. So anybody who's looking to kind of get that context there, they have that. They also launched equity considerations and equity considerations document. Um, a few weeks ago that they continue to serve as a living document. So for any practitioner that's trying to get that information, I'll provide both links to you all that you can place it in the show notes as well. Thank you. And we'll also make sure we put that on our website as well. So with that, it has been, it has been real. We appreciate the conversation and until next time. All right. Thank you. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Aaliyah, that episode was awesome. I feel like I just got a master's degree in emergency preparedness and disaster response. Marcus is is on it for real, for real. He is. And I also love the tidbit about the fact that you have been in the emergency man emergency command operation seat. Yes. So I'm yes. going to be holding you accountable for <laughs> implementing some of the advice that Marcus gave. And yeah. making sure it's others hard. Do. I will say when we did that, it is hard because you have your logistics team, your communications team, and your incident commander is coordinating 
all of that. And now with COVID and any disaster, kudos to our emergency management folks, because I was hella stressed in that whole event. It was crazy. But you really- I can't even imagine. No. And you have to learn how to delegate. Like you have these teams set up, you have to literally let them do what they do best. And then they bring information back to you. So it really was- life-changing for me and how I should live my life. So all in all, a good cause. But no, with Marcus, I mean, he gave us so much great information. And my my key takeaway is, why should we care about this, right? Like, we typically only care about the hurricane preparedness when there's a hurricane coming, or the pandemic preparedness when there's the loom of a pandemic. And so why should we care about, one, disaster response and emergency preparedness, but two, who's there? Who's showing up? Who's a part of the conversation? Who's included in the conversation for that preparedness and response? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really powerful question. And I think the way that I heard Marcus kind of tackling this in the conversation was that there's this tension between what do we have to do right now? In the midst of a disaster, whether it is a hurricane or tornado or coronavirus. Like what are the things we have to do in order to respond and get things under control? But then what's the planning that needs to happen for the long term? And I think what we're seeing now and what we talked about in the interview is that when it comes to our responses, if we're just focused on the right now, but we're not caring about the equity implications or the consequences of the decisions we're making, then there are certain communities that are going to be left behind. Every disease does not affect every community the same way. We each have different vulnerabilities, whether that's, you know, our own health issues or it's just the conditions we live in and the things that are available to us. And I think if we don't start to care or we don't get intentional about thinking about how these decisions are made and the consequences these decisions have, then we end up with responses that are inadequate because people are left behind. Um, And for me, That's just unacceptable. Yeah. And it's the lessons and the data. And so based on previous lessons in previous, you know, situations, how do we incorporate what we got right and what we got wrong? And then Mm -hmm. the other thing is the data. And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, that COVID is only highlighting all the disparities and all the dysfunction in our country. And so Again, having the real conversation, I think this is a theme of a lot of our our yeah. podcasts is let's be real and let's be intentional and let's look at the data and to say, okay, in situation X, which groups are the most vulnerable? Which groups mm-hmm. are going to have, you know, these these consequences that we might not be thinking about? And the perfect example is COVID. And me personally, starting out when we were first hearing about coronavirus, I was just looking at the health aspects of it. And I was like, I'm not really worried. You know, this is America. We have great public health programs, like, you know, not, not really taking it seriously. I had no idea about the economic impacts and what coronavirus would do to our country. And I had no idea what that would even do to my personal businesses and my revenue streams and my income. And so really now having this understanding that there is an economic impact, there is a health impact, there is a social impact to every single thing. And this can be the blueprint for true, you know, true change moving forward. I want to go back. So to what you're saying, but also what Marcus had raised in the interview that, you know, we have this data, we have these things, like it may feel new to us that health crises affect economics and social, you know, our social fabric and our social infrastructure. But if we go back and we look at major disasters like Katrina, 
like this is not new and there I am not an emergency management professional, but I think as I listened to Marcus, what kept going on in my head is like, what didn't we learn from that? There were businesses that were decimated as a result of that hurricane. There were people who had to be uprooted and moved to environments where they had no social connections. It's just just pick up and go. There were social services and programs in place around housing and food, but in the midst of a hurricane, those things can't be delivered in the same way. And you can't get to people in the same way in a situation similarly like coronavirus, where if we're asking you to socially be socially distant or we're having people work from home, the you know, the days of going in and filling out a piece of paper in order to access a service, that doesn't happen in the midst of this crisis. And so I'm just really wondering, and I would love to maybe ask Marcus this question again, like how do we how do we take those lessons and start to apply them now and in order to create not just programs, because I think you're right, we have really strong public health programs, we have really strong emergency programs, but how do we create an infrastructure that can be tapped on and called upon to actually support and move resources in a way that is... Um, I don't know, that is necessary yeah. in light of all of these changing shifts and uncertainties. And I love that you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. One, that was my very first instance, and it maybe led the framework and the foundation to me starting in this work, because that was the first time I ever wrote an elected official outraged. Like, wow. what are you doing? People are hungry. People are stranded. People, you know, are dying and we're not doing anything about it. But we so soon forget We so soon forget that these things happen and the things that, you know, all tied into it. And then it's the next disaster and then it's the next thing. And so I think our local leaders are doing a great job. Like you literally have Mm -hmm. staff members that this is their job every single day. We pay people to do this every single day. It's almost as if the rest of the stakeholders, the community have to catch up and see the importance, like now see the importance of public health. Let's fund it a little bit differently. Let's see the importance of emergency management. Let's fund it differently. And so I, I, I'm grateful that the silver lining is this realization that, oh, wow, there are other impacts to these disasters or to these pandemics or epidemics that might happen. And so I'm I'm hoping that the conversation is more robust and meaningful and the resources are different moving forward. Yeah. And I think Marcus said it best. There was a part in the interview where he said, you know, each of us has the ability to lead from where you are. And I think what we're learning in these different crisis moments is that sometimes things that we think had nothing to do with that potential issue actually has a lot to do with it. So when Corona, like you said, when coronavirus started, we may have not have ever thought that small business would be part of the conversation where we're talking about how do you prevent the spread of a disease. You may be in the tech industry and have never thought that that had anything to do with the spread. But now we're seeing apps pop up of how do you talk to your doctor from your cell phone and, you know, be able to do a screening or get medical advice from the comfort of your couch? How do we leverage tech in order to be able to talk to our, you know, coworkers in order to do our business differently? And so I think really thinking about where are you at in this moment? What industry are you in? What perspective do you bring? And how do we build that, not just to an emergency response, but like creating our own resilience individually and as a community and in our family, our family units? Yeah, I'm excited. I think I just voted like, We just motivated me. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Thanks, Aaliyah.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. We do not take it lightly that you are willing to be a part of the conversation and move the needle and be of great impact in your community. Please check us out online at checkboxoutreach.com or find us on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.